welcome to episode 54 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, we'll be talking about um, children's books when children versus children's books when adult, or something like that. We'll explain it better <laughs> soon. <laughs> and, and to particularly children's book in the second half, as recommended by my friend Lauren, we're doing Thomas Manette Garden by Philippa Pierce versus The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Um, but before any of that, Rachel, how are you and what are you reading? Hi, so, um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's, it's snowing again today, randomly, um, in March, which feels a bit odd. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, just, I was just getting starting to get excited about spring, but, and I was thinking about, you know, reading the Enchanted April and getting, <laughs> um, back into the swing of things, so I'm putting that plan on hold. Um, yeah, busy as always. I've got the keys to my new flat, which is very exciting. Oh my gosh, that was, that was so fast. <laughs> I know, it's really quick, because there were, there were no, um, chains on either end, so. You're a homeowner. I know, but I can't move in for ages because it needs gutting, but, um, yeah, very exciting. Wow. Um, and I've been reading a lot actually. I've, um, I treated myself to some new books the other day because I, you know, when you just look at all the books on your shelf and you think, I don't feel like reading any of you right now. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, it's, it's time to go and get some new books then. What a shame. So I've, <laughs> you, I picked up, I know, I'm just a devil. You made yourself do it. You know, I did. <laughs> Something compelled me. Um, so I picked up a new book that's, well, I don't know, actually, I think it might have come out last year, but, it's, there's been a lot of talk about it. It's called Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. I don't know if you've seen it. I feel like I've seen it on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those books that's doing the rounds. And I thought, well, you know, everybody's talking about it. I'll give it a try. I read the first couple of pages in the bookshop and I thought it sounds quite good. Um, I really enjoyed it, actually. And I bought a copy for my colleague at work. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I was like, oh, you're going to love this. You've got to read this. It's a bit, It's one of those, it's kind of, you know, literary chick lit, really. Um, it's not going to rock your world but it's I just really enjoyed it I thought it was really interesting um and then I, so I finished that in a day um and then I've just started reading Olive Kitteridge which is by Elizabeth Strout mm, yeah. which was another book I picked up because I love those Elizabeth Strout books so much that we discussed on a previous episode um and this I think was the book that won her the Pulitzer Prize and mm, it was mm. the first one that people started saying oh you know she's a she's a big name so I'm just over halfway through that because, I mean, it's just addictive. I just love it. I think I prefer it to the other two, actually. Really? Because, yeah, a lot of people, when we did that episode, got in touch to say uh, Olive Kittredge is even better. So, yeah, mm. I think you'd like it. It's very Ann Tyler. I didn't love the only Ann Tyler I've read, but I think <laughs> but I feel like I probably <laughs> would. I read, yeah. the, I did, read uh, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant or words yeah, like I that. Yeah, I don't think that's her best. Yeah, people really love it. And I didn't hate it. I just couldn't. So I didn't feel a lot of momentum to take me through it. But, but I, yes, I'll certainly read Olive Kittredge at some point, I think, but I'm, I'm trying to read books from my own shelves this year as much as possible. Oh, um, you're doing a great job doing, so do, far. Doing okay, doing okay. Um, and one, in fact, one of the books I'm reading, in fact, I think all the books I'm reading at the moment are from my shelf. But what, uh, the one I was reading just now is um, The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Right. That sounds like a book you'd never read. Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I've had moments while I was reading it thinking, why am I reading this? But I really like John Ronson. Um, have you read anything by him? No, I can't even say I know the name. Oh, okay. So he's a journalist who's written various books about sort of, I guess, strange or or unusual things. So he's written about, um, he wrote The Man Who Stare at Goats, which was done. Oh, well, I know, yeah. Yeah, which is all about the CIA and their ways of uh, getting information out of people, basically. 
Um, he wrote, um, so you've been publicly shamed, which is brilliant, which is all about, you know, when everyone on Twitter launches onto someone and, mm. and tears their life apart because they've made a, you know, unfortunate joke or something. Um, and this one is all about, uh, there's a, a test divided, devised by someone called Bob Hare, which is basically determines whether or not someone is a psychopath. Um, yeah. and I find the psych- psychology of it fascinating. Um, what I had not really thought about, which I should have done before I went in, is that he's going to ex- tell me the things that psychopaths have done. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm having to skim over lots of pages of gruesome murders and sexual assaults and all sorts of things, which um not not in one particularly wanting to read. And then <laughs> and then going to the more interesting to me, um yeah, psycho- psychological bits and it's all sorts of things about how people who are psychopaths, which apparently is about one percent of the population, would would be judged on on this test either, you know, do all those sorts of awful things or they find other ways to get that thrill, i.e. and that is often successes in business or in politics or something. So there's a much higher or noticeably higher percentage of people who would be considered psychopaths in, like, CEOs and, you know, leading politicians and all that sort of thing. Mm. Which is, you know, unnerving. <laughs> but, yes. um, but a very interesting book. And he writes, he, I mean, he writes like a journalist. It feels like you're reading a very long you know, times two article or something, but um, which is not a bad thing, but it, that, that's just his style. But uh, yeah, it, the, the other book I'm reading is called Tea with Walter de la Mare, so that, that gives you a, shows you yeah. the, the spread of my reading at the moment, but, um, which is by someone called Russell Brain, who uh, was a, brilliantly was a scientist, <laughs> um, and became friends with Walter de la Mare, and it's sort of, it's account of the various times they met up and had tea. <laughs> um, it's not very well written, but it's quite interesting. It's lots of then he said this, and then I said this, and then he said this. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm finding not that I'm not getting on with fiction very much at the moment, so I'm reading quite a lot of non-fiction. Sometimes you just go through phases, don't you? Yeah. Um, but I will say that having read children's books for the podcast this week it certainly helped. It felt... Um, Yes, that was a lot easier than trying to get on with an, with an adult novel. Yeah. Um, and so yes, the topic of the first half, we, well, is it, this sort of developed because Rachel texted me and suggested we do being part of the, in, the initial hype for a book versus reading it when the hype's died down. And I had to confess basically that I never read books <laughs> when the hype says I would. <laughs> and occasionally I don't, I like to have some sort of <laughs> clue what I'm talking about on here. <laughs> Um, so I suggested we tweak it slightly to being, it's a sort of, it's vaguely the same, but it's much broader, like reading children's yeah. books when you're a child versus reading them when you're an adult. So in as much as there's hype to children's books when you're a child, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically reading it when at the right, inverted commas, right time versus reading it yes. at the inverted commas wrong time. Um, yeah. Th- what are your thoughts? Oh. Are we in there? Yeah, or, or you know, I've talked for. I keep. I feel like I've said <laughs> said far too much. So so far. Um, well, I'll be more specific. Are there any books that you've read as an adult that you think most other people were reading as children? Yeah, quite a lot actually. Um, I think I realised when I was in my early to mid twenties that I'd missed out on a lot of the of the major books mm. that everyone was talking about as being childhood favourites. Uh, particularly American books. So, for example, Little House on the Prairie series, the Anne of Green Gables series. I just never read them. Mm. Um, I read. I was very much, um, I suppose, an Enid Blyton reader and a 19th century English author reader, unsurprisingly. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm shocked to my core. <laughs> yeah, I started young. 
so it was there was this whole world of books that I would find people talking about on book blogs and things and reminiscing about and I and I thought well you know I just I don't know I don't even know the story of these books so I started trying to fill in the gaps so I read all of the Little House on the Prairie series and the Anne of Green Gables series when I lived in America mm. um which was a long I don't even want to say how many years ago. <laughs> that's depressing um and I really, really enjoyed them, actually. I love The Little House on the Prairie books, absolutely adored them. But I, I don't know how I would have found them when I was a child. I don't know whether I would have enjoyed them, actually, because um, certainly I think you do need to have a certain amount of knowledge of American history to appreciate them. Mm. Uh, and I don't think I would have known anything about pioneering people moving across to the States or about the the tensions between the the Native American community and, and the settling community. Uh, and I think a lot of it would have gone over my head, really. So I really appreciated it. And I was also reading alongside a load of stuff about pioneer communities and about the, the women that moved and the experiences of, of the people coming um, like on the wagon trains and things like that so that really enriched my reading and I think as a child obviously I wouldn't have been like hey man let's go to the library and get books about pioneer women <laughs> and find out more so I think actually reading those books as an adult I got a lot more out of them than I probably would have as a child whereas the Anne of Green Gables series I really loved and I really enjoyed it but I, I did keep thinking as I was reading it oh how I would have loved this when I was little and this would really have inspired me and it would have been a Anne would have been a real mm, mm. character that I warmed to and felt that was like me, and I, I felt a bit like I'd, I'd missed out on something. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar to you in, in terms of reading mostly Ina Blight and, and then, um, you know, the odd bit of Inesbit and, and lots mm. of Richard Crompton, and I read the Jennings school books that no one seems to read now. But, um, did you ever read Anthony Buckridge's Jennings books? Uh, no. Um, no. He, what he fossilized fish, fossilized fish hooks was his catchphrase. <laughs> um, which tells you probably all you need to know about them, but, uh, I very much enjoyed them. And yes, I have come to various other ones later, and there's still lots I've not read. Um, but just to pick up on your point about, uh, The Little House on the Prairie books, which I haven't read, um, is, I don't feel the same, but when I was a child, I didn't really even think about the historical context of any books I read. It was just, they were in the past, and that was a fairly flat landscape to me, where mm. I didn't really think this is 1980 versus 1920 versus 1820 or whatever. It was just before I was born. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was the, the whole time period. So I didn't notice whether books, which period books were set in, really. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really read anything. I think Jacqueline Wilson was the only modern children's author I read much of, so everything else was just old everyone's had shillings so whether they were you know early 19th century shillings or mid 20th century shillings so, yeah yeah um but yes i think there have been definitely some i think Andrew green gables is the same for me i only read that for the first time i don't know two or three years ago uh and it was my mum's favorite book as a child uh she's also called Anne, so uh, they had that in common um and i think a lot of young girls particularly really warm to that sort of you mm. know um, fiery, well, not that fiery, I guess, but you know, she's not a, a, a meek and annoying girl. So she's, she's no. a character to actually admire and aspire to be like. Um, so yes, I, I, I feel like there are some books like that that I would probably have enjoyed a lot reading as a child. Um, and then some that 
I would, but still very much enjoyed reading when I did. And then there's some that I just didn't enjoy reading and might have done as a child. Um, and I don't know if Catcher in the Rye counts as a children's book, but I, but I do feel if you read it after the age of 14, that <laughs> then you're, it's very hard not to just roll your eyes. <laughs> yeah, I think there are some books that capture very much a state of mind and a way of looking at the world that you don't appreciate. Well, I mean, you can understand it because you went through it, but I think unless you're in that emotional state, you just, yeah, you do just think, oh, for goodness sake, get over yourself um, or grow up a bit. But actually, I find that quite interesting that you said that about The Catcher in the Rye because I enjoyed it when I read it, but I didn't kind of feel the sadness of it until I read it again when I was older. And then I felt that full weight of the sadness of his well, the things that he was saying because I was like, well, you shouldn't have been feeling like that at that age. And I feel really sad for you that you did. And it kind of brought back a lot of memories for me. And um, I found it actually much more heartbreaking and more, I suppose I got more more out of it from reading it later. Maybe that goes full circle because I was 18 when I read it and was just... No, I think you've read it with age. Yeah, I think <laughs> I mean, you need to come back to it now. I suspect I won't, but you're probably right that it would. Well, I don't know. I just books that expect you to empathise with the main character, um, which which I think that one does. I think yeah. you have to. I don't know. I guess it sounds to me more like you sympathise with him than empathise with him. Perhaps you. I don't know if you thought of him as if you if you read it as old enough that you could think of him as a as a child distant from you rather than being expected to be on the same level as him. If that makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'd find that this time if I read it again, but you know maybe I wouldn't. Uh, yeah. um, and um, oh, what was I going to say? It's gone. Oh, and we'll talk about it later, I guess. Uh, but of the two books we did today, The Secret Garden was one that I hadn't read before. Um, and there's something about books like that where you just sort of assume you have read it or, or at least have had it read to you. And I don't know, there are some children's books where I just don't know whether I've read them or not. And I know the stories inside out either because of their film or just because they've somehow entered the popular culture, popular consciousness. Um, and I don't know, people just expect you to have read them and then you think the actual reading experience ends up being quite quite strange in a way because you, you feel like you've already read it and you haven't and it's this... Yeah, yeah I suppose you know the story, don't you? Yeah, and I think particularly when, when a whole pop, you know idea in the popular consciousness is built up around a book, that when you actually go and read it, it's it can be jarring if it doesn't match what you think it's going to be. I found that with Mary Poppins, actually, when I first read that, which I... I, was, I don't think I've ever read that. Yeah, and I, the, I was 19, I guess. So, you know, still fairly young, but not a child. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's, so there's five books in the series and it's very different from the film. She's, she's quite a sort of crotchety, snappy person who lies all the time and she, she's, <laughs> yeah, you know, she, she's wants the children's best interest, but she's not warm at all. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and she, I mean, it was very literally Disneyfied when, when Disney did it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it can be interesting when you're not reading it as a child, and when you're reading it in the context of the, you know, the impression that the film has made is much wider than the impression mm-hmm. the book's made. Um, yeah, it, it's sort of a, a jarring moment in the way that I think reading adult books isn't, because 
I don't know, they don't enter the your your mind in quite the same way. You don't, I don't know, it's, the adult books tend not to have that same figurehead um, feeling to them. Does that make sense? They're not, they're not such cultural standpoints in the way that children's books are. Yeah, and I think children's books in a way form your character and mm. form, form your sense of the world in a way that adult books don't because you've already got ideas about I mean, I think adult books can confirm your vision of the world or open up new ways of looking at things, but I don't think they form you in the same way. And certainly I would say that the books I read as a child very much, I don't know whether, I mean, it's a kind of chicken and egg situation. Was I drawn to particular books because I already had that personality or did reading those books give me the personality that I had? I don't know. But, Mm. um, you know, having always been a a bookish child, um, he was always reading and that's all I ever wanted to do. (laughs) Um, I was, I think also there was an element of my mum giving me books that she'd enjoyed as a child. And certainly my mum wasn't really au fait with what was going on in the children's publishing world or anything. So I got all the books she read when she was a kid. Um, so I did have all those 19th century books. And I, I do, I have always had a very 19th century way of looking at the world. And I wonder whether that's <laughs> because I've, I, I read so much 19th century children's fiction and, it's interesting that you said about how you you never really located those books within a particular time frame because for me I, I was always very aware I was reading a Victorian novel and that's what I enjoyed about it. Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't think I had any idea that the Railway Children was in a different period from the Jennings books, which you know they're sixty years apart or more, more than that, eighty years probably. Um, you're obviously just a better better <laughs> better mind than mine was. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Um, I mean, I guess because I didn't know anything about fashion history, uh, so you know, if they were describing dresses, I wouldn't have a clue what you know they're linked to. Um, yeah, that's, I, that's what I found fascinating because I always loved history, and I I would have all these history books, and I would pour through them to find out more information about um, you know life at the times. Like I remember reading The Secret Garden and being confused as to why the parents and she were in in India. And I remember asking my mum and she said, oh, well, you know, it was the empire. So then I was like, well, I want to find out more about this. And obviously this is before the Internet. So off to the mm. library I would go and go to the you know, reference section. And Gosh, they must have loved you. Like, I know, yeah. I was such a little geek. Like, yeah. She's going to have a book about the Indian Empire. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was, I, I just found that whole sense that I was in a different time. It kind of added to the uh, the sense of being in a, another world that a book allows you to enter. You know, not only was I having this wonderful story about other people, I was also in a different time. And I don't know if you ever read Lady Daisy. Um, I've never heard of it, no. Oh, but I think it's by Anne Fine. It's this wonderful book I just loved. I'd read again and again. My copy was so battered about this Victorian doll that this child, a modern day child, finds in the attic. And when she finds the doll, the doll wakes up. And I mean, terrifying, but okay. <laughs> yes. And then you have the perspective of Lady Daisy of being alive in a time that's not hers and her referring back to the Victorian times and being like, oh, you know, why are there aeroplanes in the sky and all the sun? I mean, I just loved it. Hmm. And do you find, well, how would you compare reading it, that sort of book then to reading it now? So I guess it's, it's basically that was your entrance into understanding about history versus now you'd read it knowing about history. I don't yeah. know. Um, how, how would you compare those? Yeah, I think now I sort of read those those books to from a critical perspective, really, looking for what I didn't see when I was younger. And I remember reading a couple of years ago a really interesting essay about Little Women and about um, 
the feminism beneath the surface. And I thought, oh, you know, obviously I completely missed that when I was seven. So <laughs> I, I read it again and I could completely see what she was saying. And I thought that's really interesting. And um, then going back to the secret garden and, and looking at that and thinking about um, also having read the biographies of, of, of the authors as well is, is really interesting to look at it from that perspective and see what they're writing into into the books from, from their personal experience. And I found reading The Secret Garden again and thinking about Victorian attitudes towards the child, Victorian attitudes towards parenting, Victorian attitudes towards health. Um, and when you're thinking about the, certainly the, the uncle and, and, um, I can't remember what's the the Colin, um, (laughs) that idea of that constant hypochondria and that fear of of being ill and of death and of death being ever present, you know, the mother dying because she falls off a swing, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, Mary's parents dying in, in, in India, that idea of death being all around. I didn't think about that when I read it as a child. But now I'm like, well, actually, those children that this book was written for in the late 19th century death would have been all present around them as well. They would have lost siblings. They would have, might maybe have lost a parent. You know, death would have, have been a constant in their lives the way it's not now. And I, I find that a really interesting reflection of that society, that it was actually okay to talk about death and to have everybody die in a book and it not be a sad thing. It's just a matter of fact. It's just life. Yeah, there does seem to have been, I think we may have talked about this before, there seems to have been a, um, a, a dip or a change in the early 20th century where they felt like children had to be protected from these things and it's come full circle mm. now where you know children's books as far as I'm aware um certainly I mean Jacqueline wasn't onwards a very issue driven oh yeah absolutely um, and yeah so it's all come full, come full circle in some ways <laughs> um have you had an experience of re-reading children's books and they've been very different from how you experienced them the first time around when you read them as a child sadly um rereading Edith Blyton is, is, <laughs> is never a good thing I don't think and um, I was quite I reread the Mallory Towers books a couple of years ago those are my absolute favourites I mean there was nothing I wanted more than to go to boarding school um, and reading those books I was like oh this is an amazing <laughs> thing ever like I want to go to the school by the sea and have a nice feast and everyone's so fun and uh, <laughs> I the exact and, opposite response to it but yes <laughs> I, I just loved it I remember begging my mum being like mum please can I go to boarding school she's like yeah like you do know how much they cost I was like no <laughs> nobody ever mentions that in the book that's yeah. true actually no, don't. Okay, the money is never mentioned and there is no sense here of these girls being uh, privileged in it they don't recognise their own privilege in any way it's just well everyone goes to school and mummy went here so I'm going here that kind of thing yes, um, I I just seem to remember there's one in the Naughtiest Girl in the School series, maybe, who, her secret shame is that she's, you know, is get, getting a scholarship, or not a scholarship, or like, you know, a bursary, because, you know, she can't afford it. And that's the only time it's mentioned, and it's this very, you know, shameful secret that you can't tell yeah. other people. Um, but yes, yeah, so I love the Naughtiest Girl in the School series, they're quite different in some ways. Yeah, I think they're for slightly younger readers, aren't they? Um, um, I don't know, actually, but yes, possibly that they're, it's all set up like a sort of, socialist utopia which has um, perhaps influenced my yeah, left-wing views to this day who knows <laughs> <laughs> but i mean i'm surprised actually having read so much union blighter that i didn't turn out a racist prig really because well quite they're yeah. terrible i mean they're racism the snobbery um and actually remarkably little happens in the books um, I remember them being these huge sort of chunksters that would take me days to get through and there'd be so much going on and I'd be super excited to find out what happened next. And, you know, I'd read them in an hour and be like, oh God, that was a whole year's worth of school and nothing really happened. Just a couple <laughs> of and, 
the picnic. I I remember there being so many picnics and things like that. It's like oh, there's just like one. <laughs> if if I'm lucky. Well, I guess I've not re- reread any Enid Blyton for many years. I did reread the Nauseous Girl series about ten years ago, and I I still quite enjoyed them just because I could still remember exactly what it was like reading them the first time. I guess. But um, I don't reread a lot of children's books, and I think it is partly because I'm not a child, <laughs> partly because of, yeah, the fear of um, them not living up mm. to those experiences. I mean, sometimes like, I loved the Indian in the Cupboard series by Lindbergh Banks. Oh, I did too. But just I mean, the title now of like, oh nope, okay, that one, that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, which in case people don't know, it's a Native American um, figurine who comes to life. Um, but yes, it's referred to as an Indian throughout throughout the book, um, and there's all sorts of. Yeah, I think there was various troubling things other than just the name. But mm. um, books I have reread and loved the Just William series um, have completely set up, and that's partly because they were written for adults in the first place, and it was only um, subsequently, or you know, after they were, I think maybe when they were first published, but it wasn't her intention for them to be popular amongst children particularly. Um, so she said, "Not writing down." Um, but yeah, I think. Sometimes it's nice to come to these classics with, you know, more literary and historical knowledge, such as I have, and more understanding of the author's life. Um, but there is occasionally that, that time where I think, oh, actually, I wish I had read this originally, or I wish I'd read this when it might have formed. I mean, I wish I hadn't wasted so much time reading Goosebumps when I could have been reading, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, literature. <laughs> But I mean, I guess the important thing when I was a child was that I was allowed to read what I wanted to read, and it made me love reading. Whereas if someone had said, "No, you have to read the Victorian classics instead of Goosebumps," I just wouldn't have read anything, probably. No, and I think I think there's an element of thinking, "Oh, you know, I should have read this when I was younger." But essentially, you can't change what's happened, and I think all um, all books you read at whatever point in time they're interesting for different reasons, and. I do think there are some children's books that don't stand the test of time, absolutely. Um, and there are some that are quite, you know, trashy. Like I, I loved the um, the Babysitters Club series. Oh, I okay. just absolutely <laughs> adored them. Read well, me and my best friend. We would take turns borrowing them from the library because we, my parents, refused to buy them for us. Um, and <laughs> it was just like we just absolutely loved it. And there were like 150 books in the series. It's just oh, like, <laughs> and, and, and they kept bringing out new ones all the time. So it was great. You always had something new to read. And I loved reading those, but I knew they were trash as I was reading them. And they'd be, never be something I'd want to read now. Um, whereas I do think there are classic children's books like The Secret Garden that are real comfort blanket reads and ones that you go back to again and again. And you get something more out of it every time. Like Little Women, I get something more out of every time I read it. Um, and part of it is me having the lovely memories of reading it as a child. But there's also the element of reading it now, as you say, as an adult with knowledge of literature and history and everything else and being able to to read it from that perspective. And it's those books that are well written and that are a real, I suppose, picture of their time that, that do tend to stand up. Enid Blyton, I think kids still seem to enjoy them, though they have, you know, changed all the names and taken all of the references to, you know, racially suspect things out now but kids do still seem to enjoy them they're saying that i mean i have bought them for my nephews and they're not really interested so i don't know how much longer those books will survive for really because kids don't seem to want to read that sort of thing now 
Yeah, they so, they want more fast-paced stuff and issues, as you say. Yeah, I mean, as I did like you, I remember them being very fast-paced, perhaps compared to you know the Hunger Games or something, they, yeah. which is obviously a slightly older audience. But um, yes, I, I suppose there's a lot, a lot more choice and a lot more people um, writing all sorts of children's literature now, I guess. Whereas, yeah. um, even when we were growing up, you know, there wasn't the internet. We had to just rely on what was in the local library. Um, so we didn't have the whole whole world of children's literature at our fingertips. No. And I, I don't actually think there is a lot of children's literature these days. Certainly from the age of about nine upwards, books are so much more mature in content than they ever were when we were growing up. Okay. And one of the things that, I mean, if you're talking about reading whilst there's hype, um, if is obviously when you're a child, it's more, much more likely that other children are reading these books at the same time. Mm. Um, and I had a bit of that. There's a girl in my class called Georgina who's reading the St. Clair series at the same time I was, and we used to <laughs> you know, swap them and talk about them. Um, Adorable. And... <laughs> hey, how dreams. Okay, bye then. Uh, and um, yes, and my brother and I would sometimes be reading books at the same time. Well, they're not hugely often, as far as I can recall. Um, but I don't really remember there being any big hype about certain books in school. So not in the way that, you know, Harry Potter, when I got to, to high school, everyone was reading that at the end, towards the end of my time at high school. Um, mm. And there was a bit, I mean, I had a few friends who read Goosebumps books and we'd swap them. And, a, and a, my friend Sarah read Jacqueline Wilson and we'd swap them. But I certainly don't feel there was any equivalent to the, oh gosh, everyone on Twitter is reading it amongst my class and I mean now children maybe do that online if they've got the you know parental guidance and that sort of thing but um did you have much experience of there being hype around a book whether new or not and all your friends are reading it or was it more of a just solitary um excitement about different books I think my secondary school friends they weren't readers so um no I don't I remember everybody reading Harry Potter which I was mm. as well, because that came out when we were. I'm the, well, we're exactly the same age as Harry Potter, so yeah, yeah. I was literally. I think the first one came out when I was in year eight, maybe. So I was reading as he was. I was reading them as they were coming out, so that was really exciting. Because um, my dad actually, you know, it was surprising for my dad to be on it literally on a literary thing, but he actually got me um, the book, the first book when it came out. Um, sadly, I no longer have that copy. Um, but. So what happens when you get rid of books, Rachel? I know. Um, but yeah, so I was reading it quite early on. It wasn't a first edition anyway, so, um, it was a paperback, but, so I had the second book very, I've got very early printings of the first, of the two and, two and three, because I did buy them when they came out. Um, so it's, yeah, I remember everybody talking about that and that was quite nice because for, for once I was actually had people to talk about books with. Um, and everyone, I remember everyone being really excited about that, but other books I was reading, no. And to be honest, by the time I got to about 12 or 13, I was reading adult books anyway. Yeah. So I'm basically, again, very, very similar in that none of my friends read you know, openly, certainly. I, I remember on the school bus, I was the only one who read a book on the school bus for secondary <laughs> school. Um, and that was the, I think probably the most wonderful thing about coming to university was finding that other people loved reading. And I'd never 
met someone who loved reading before. Um, like my brother read occasionally, and you know other friends. If I would occasionally say, "Oh yeah, I did read a book," you know, this year or something. But to find other people who loved reading was amazing. Um, so yeah, certainly at secondary school, and not really before that, I had I ever been part of a buzz around a book, even Harry Potter. That you know, it, I had a few friends who were reading it, but it was still not cool to be reading it, <laughs> um, <laughs> and you you couldn't like you know sit out in the playground with a coffee without being <laughs> shouted at. But, um, so, yeah, I think, I don't know if it's if it's changed now or if, you know, if I'd been at a fancier school than the one I was at, it would have been different then. But um, there's only weren't like children's book clubs or anything, which I, I'm sure some schools have now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't remember. We certainly didn't have anything like that when I was at school. But, I mean, in every school I've worked in, there's been school there's been book clubs and I certainly have run them at my school now and there is actually a lot more I think schools and teachers have been encouraged more to to push reading and to make reading more accessible and to buy the latest books and things whereas when I was at school the library was very much a reference um, resource it wasn't somewhere you'd go to get the latest book to read Um, it was right you need to come in here and you need to get a book about you know chemistry for your homework or whatever um whereas now i was certainly i mean i'm head of the department in my school so i get to choose what we buy and things so i will make sure say for example the carnegie award got announced this week the shortlist and i've ordered two sets of the carnegie award books to to come to school so we're going to be doing reading groups around that so and that's something that most schools do so children are encouraged and actually i was quite surprised when i did the book group last year that i had several boys who really wanted to join and wanted to come along and it wasn't like oh god it's sad for me to be reading this book and I'm embarrassed um they were like no I want to come and they were talking to all their friends about it and so I think kids I think just books for kids are a bit more exciting now and lots of the kids are always reading and talking about what they're reading it's really encouraging which is really nice and they love the series they love like Percy Jackson which is this book about like a modern day greek hero is i don't really get it but they love it <laughs> um and they love the adventure stories and there are so many good books now for kids that are also not only fantasy books but books that are reflective of their reality but not in a kind of cheesy way and i think jacqueline wilson really paved the way for that mm-hmm. so and Judy and Bloom, I, I guess. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I read a lot of these books because often I want to check that they're not inappropriate before I start recommending yeah. them to people. And I get <laughs> a, an email from parents being like, why don't you give it to my kids? Um, and I really enjoy them as well. And I think, oh, you know, should I be uh, should I be enjoying this? Because it's supposed to be for a 13-year-old. But the stories are so sophisticated. And I think sophisticated in a way that books weren't when we were growing up. And I don't know whether I'm just making blanket statements here, but I do feel that the the industry for children's publishing has really woken up in the last 10 years or so and and children are being treated in a much more I'm not respectful but in a in a way that that respects the fact that they don't just want to read about picnics and going swimming in the sea and adventures and that sort of thing and part of me thinks that's great because you know it means there's wider range and Mm. and um, might be you know more things that reach the issues that children are facing or sort of thing. But part of me this thinks one thing I really loved about my childhood reading is it was this like idyllic world I was entering where the worst thing that would happen is that you might your midnight feast might be discovered. Um, <laughs> and I mean I didn't have any great issues I was facing at home, so I didn't, I wasn't like desperate to find a book about 
you know, insert crisis here, or I could empathise with the character. So, you know, I had quite a charmed childhood. So, I'm not the, not going to speak for everyone here, but um, but yeah, I did like the fact that it was escapist before I even knew what that meant, really. Um, yeah. And I, I hope that children still have some access to that as well. Oh, definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. There are a lot of of books like that too, but I think it was quite hard for us to realise we were really the last generation that grew up without terrorism and without the internet. I mean, and, we had television, Rachel. <laughs> but, you know, that, no, t- terrorism. Oh, that's sorry. Right, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's like, television. how old do you think I am? <laughs> You're like 90. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the 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 um, 9-11 bombing yeah, happened course, when we yeah. were 13. And I think all children who've grown up... 16. Since <laughs> that. Well, I think I was 13, wasn't I? In 2001? No, I was 14 then. Okay, I was 16. No, no, I was 15. Okay. That was a good age, Simon. Come on. I'm I'm, I'm just enough bit older than you to be one year older (laughs) for when that happened. Oh, yeah, when that happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it was kind of that, that's that's the world that they live in now where danger is ever present. And I don't think it's something that's, Whereas I don't think we ever really had to think about things like that. And also... Yeah, true. The Cold War had sort of ended and we weren't... Yeah. Uh, yes, we were yeah. just kind of this sort of limbo time. And mm. we also didn't have the temptation of constantly being able to go on the internet, which mm. they've got... I find when I had a massive rant at one of my classes about this the other day, because they were annoying me, um, <laughs> about how limited attention their attention spans are. And so actually books now, I've noticed this in the last few years, have become so much more fast paced and the action happens right from the very first chapter. Because if it doesn't, they're bored, they don't want to read it, they want to give up because they're used to constantly being stimulated in a way that we weren't. We were, I was prepared to wait until, you know, halfway through the secret garden to find Colin. Um, you know. Yeah, sure, you get the Narnia, you, like, you're not, you're not in, in the line that's in the wardrobe, you don't get into Narnia for, chapters you've got them like just walking around this old house for ages and that's like thing. you know yeah. i'm fine with that this is yeah, not yeah. exploring the house whereas kids i i studied it with a class a couple of years ago and they were just like well you know when's stuff going to start to happen i'm like but this is really interesting guys because you know they're evacuated and they're exploring the house and they just you know not interested. this is the story yeah <laughs> yeah so um let's come to the decision mm. it's, it's 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 a tricky one because they they certainly both have it's just, it just feels very different, I guess, reading yeah. children's books as a child versus um, reading them now, and it's very, it is quite hard to compare. But um, I think ultimately, I will go. Pref- I preferred it as a child, and w- wish I'd, you know, generally, I wish I'd read these books earlier because it's always possible to reread, um, and they are so influential then um, mm-hmm. in sort of determining what sort of reader I was. Um, it's tricky because I didn't read that many children's classics as a child, so I'm basically saying I wish I had. But, um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, I'm glad I read it in Blyton. I wouldn't want to do it now. <laughs> um, for that, for that sake, I wish. Yes, I think reading them as a child, for because of the different sense of quality control and different sen- understanding of them, um, I will slightly prefer over reading them now, which I can still enjoy, but it always maybe slightly laced with regret that it didn't happen earlier. Yeah, I think I'm pretty much the same. I mean, I, I do enjoy rereading books, but I, you know, it's a reread, isn't it? And you've, you've got all that richness of the childhood memory. I think it's, it's still nice to read children's books now that you didn't read as a child. And I did, like I said, I have really enjoyed that experience, but mm. I always enjoy it more when I, I can look back and think, oh, you know, I remember. And so, yeah, agree. 
Yeah, gosh, it's slightly more unrelenting. <laughs> um, but let's quickly move on to two children's books about gardens. Um, and two children who are bizarrely obsessed with gardens in a way that I have never been. <laughs> and I suspect no 10-year-old has ever been. <laughs> um, any preference for which one you introduce us to? Uh, no, absolutely not. So you choose... Um, sure, I'll go for Thomas Minot Garden then. Okay. So that was published, I think, in 1958, um, mm-hmm. and by Philip Pierce. I don't know what else she's done, but maybe you'll be able to tell me. But it's, it's about a boy called Tom who is, um, ev- uh, not evacuated, quarantined from his brother who has measles, um, and has to go and live with his aunt and uncle, uh, who live in a, in a house that's been converted into lots of flats. It's a grand old house, but they just have a small flat in it. And the thing that really upsets Tom is that there's no garden. It's just got a yard. And he really loves being in gardens and outside. And he can't go into the rest of the world because he's in quarantine um, and might be infectious. But there's a clock in the hallway that strikes odd hours. Um, so it'll strike two when it's 11 and all that sort of thing. And in his way around, the fact that he's been told he must be in bed for 10 hours every night is that when the clock strikes 13, this must mean there is an extra hour. Great logic, Tom. Um, <laughs> and he uh, goes downstairs and discovers that there is this wonderful garden and that it is daytime in the garden. Um, and he meets Hattie, who is, the, um, he learns, a Victorian child. She's the only one, well, no, quite the only one, but one of the only people who can see him. And there's all these... Uh, uh, um, sort of brothers and various other characters who don't see him. And he just has lots of adventures in this garden, um, going down there every night to see it. Um, and that's as much as I'll say at the moment. But um, yes, tell us about the secret garden, please. <laughs> well, where to start? So the secret <laughs> garden opens with Mary Lennox, who is an only child, and she is living in India with her parents. It's the sort of mid to late 19th century. I don't know the exact date. Um, I think- Oddly, late, I think it's set then, but it's, I think it was published in 1911, which is yes, later than was. I thought it was. It yes. was an Edwardian mm. novel, but it's set yeah. in Victorian times. Yeah. Um, I assume it is anyway. Um, and Mary, uh, there's one, one day, she doesn't really understand. She's about eight or nine years old. Everybody starts disappearing and she, um, wakes up to find that her parents and all of her servants and everyone has died of a cholera epidemic. And she is found by some British soldiers and she is taken back to England to be the ward of her uncle who lives um, alone in this Misselthwaite Manor. Wonderful great, name. Great name, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, which is this huge pile in, in Yorkshire. And it's a very sad house because her uncle's wife has died. His, his wife was her mother's sister and um, he... He, he's often away and the house is very miserable. He's very miserable. He's very gruff with her. He doesn't really want Mary around. He says she can have whatever she wants, but he's not really engaged in, in making friends with her. And, and Mary has always been very spoiled and um, given whatever she wanted. So she's also not a particularly nice little girl. And by coming to the house, though, she realises through making friends with Martha, her maid, who's a local girl, that actually she's, she's not as um, special as she thinks she is. And gradually being in Yorkshire and in the fresh air and meeting the local people, she um, starts to change and she also makes a discovery of a, shall I say? I mean, people know, don't they? Of a secret garden. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she makes a discovery of the secret garden and also that she has a cousin 
um, who is very ill, well, thinks he's very ill and he's been kept locked away in the house all this time. His name is Colin and everyone keeps telling him, him that he's going to die um, and because he only has a hunchback, etc., etc. And the story is about how Mary, through the the secret garden and through Dickon, this local boy, Martha's brother, um, gets Colin out and about and how kind of the, the it heals them both, really, in many ways. Thank you. Lovely. Um, and so, Wes, when did you first read these books? Well, I read uh, The Secret Garden. I I read that from a very young age. I just remember we had a we actually had an abridged copy of it, um, okay. like a Ladybird edition. And then when I was older, my mum got me a, a, a the actual edition. And I read Tom's Midnight Garden. I must have been about the same age, nine, eight, nine. Um hmm. And I also really, I read them, I must have had a, little, like a bit of an obsession with garden books because I remember loving <laughs> um, Moon Dial by Helen Cresswell as well, which is also set in a garden. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've read that. Um, I have bizarrely read a, like, yeah, an abridged version for early readers <laughs> when I was about <laughs> 25. So. <laughs> um, don't ask. <laughs> but, <laughs> I won't. Um, so I, yeah, and I remember... Uh, Tom's Midnight Garden I enjoyed, but it, it didn't, you know, blow me away. But um, The Secret Garden, I just, I was obsessed with it, absolutely obsessed with it. And there was also the film that came out, um, I think, around the same time that I read it, which helped, because then I loved the film and I was always asking to watch it. Have you seen the film? Well, yes, it was, in fact, the first film I ever saw at the cinema. Oh. Um, and so I um, read Tom's Midnight Garden when I was about... 21 and i read the secret garden i think for the first time this week which is you know extraordinary but um it was one of those ones where i just I get, as we were saying earlier, i didn't know whether i'd read it or not until i started and thought no i haven't <laughs> and i think maybe mum read it to us when we were very young but um i was yeah like you loved the film maggie smith doing wonderful things yeah. um with a much bigger part than mrs medlock has in the book yeah <laughs> um, you know obviously like, we got maggie smith we better give us stuff to do <laughs> but um <laughs> And similarly, Tom's Midnight Garden, there was a TV series of it in the, I think it was the early 80s, but they repeated it in maybe 1990, around then, when, which is when I watched it, and we had, we videoed that off the TV, and I've watched that hundreds of times as well. Brilliant. So these are two books that I know, or I knew extremely well adaptations of, um, and had not read the books until I was an adult, um, in, in fact, in both cases, very loyal uh, adaptations, so there's not that many differences, really. But it was it's quite strange, particularly Tom's Winter Garden, because I, I think I've seen that so many times, that it felt like the TV version was the authoritative version, and when the book differed, I was like, well, that's wrong. <laughs> it shouldn't be like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think they're both they're both books that feel very ingrained in my childhood psyche even though i hadn't read them <laughs> if you see what i mean so um, i'm interested to hear what you thought then when you actually read them um so i'll start with Tom's Night garden um which i loved um when i read it and i is but it is very hard for me to separate am i loving the memory of watching this over and over again yeah or am i loving this this book because the dialogue is basically the same um I'm not a very visual person when I'm reading. I'm very, I love visual things. You know, I love paintings and landscapes and that sort of thing. But when I'm reading, I don't see 
the book in front of me. Um, we've talked about that before. Yeah. But, um, but with this, I am seeing the TV show in front of me. So it gives, <laughs> it's enhancing it <laughs> in that way. Um, so it's quite hard for me to have, uh, give a, a critique of it in terms of its writing merit or anything like that because it's so nostalgic for me, even the first time I read it, which is quite strange, you know, feeling this childhood <laughs> nostalgia for something I hadn't read before. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't want to give away all, all the twists and turns in it because I think it does have a wonderful twist that might, I, I, again, I don't know if it's very obvious if you're reading it for the first time as an adult and don't yeah, know the story. Yeah, I, I read it, I, it felt to me like I was reading it for the first time because I, it's been so long since I read it and I, I did see it coming right from the beginning. I was like, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's a shame, but let's still not say it. <laughs> but, um, I did find, rereading it this time, I'd forgotten from my first time I read it, that it's it's quite slow in terms of giving you the garden and the characters. He goes yeah. to this garden quite a few times before he meets any of the people in it. <laughs> um, so you'd, you're not introduced to Hattie as quickly as you are in the, in the TV series. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it does feel like it builds more gradually. Um but I still, I still think it's a really lovely, um, it's a really lovely premise, really interesting idea. Mm. Um, and being, you know, a, a country boy, albeit not someone who knows a lot about plants, <laughs> <laughs> um, I could, I could certainly enjoy, um, the idea of this vast, because the garden's so big, it feels like he's basically in the countryside. And indeed, the countryside is just behind the, the wall that the, yeah. the geese can get through. <laughs> um, and I guess similarly in the Secret Garden, it is. I hadn't really thought until we started, until I was reading slash rereading them, how very similar these books are in terms of premise, even if they're quite written quite differently. In that you have grumpy, lonely child goes to live with uncle, wants access to garden, but can't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is oddly similar. <laughs> but, um, but yes, reading the Secret Garden for the first time, again, it just made me think of the film a, a lot, <laughs> and that was what I was seeing. But um, it's one of those ones where I I loved it, but it was there was a there wasn't really any bite to it in the way that the, the, there were a lot of very uh, characters who were completely noble, <laughs> like anyone <laughs> anyone from Yorkshire <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is just this paragon of optimistic <laughs> virtue. As soon as they start talking, no, I can't do Yorkshire accent. That's not one at all. Can I get? <laughs> Very broad York, now going somewhere. Else. Anyway, and then Yorkshire. the grand, grandson of a Yorkshire, Yorkshire woman. But, um, <laughs> but yes, it's, it's, it feels a, I, what's, what's the word? I don't like the word twee because I think that does. No, but it is, it is but, twee. Yeah. It is twee. And, and often I love twee things because I think what people call twee can just be something that's nice and wholesome and, and you know, in, enjoyable. But these ones, it's just a little too Pilgrim's Progress, like, occasionally of just like, Impossible virtue comes onto the scene and, and writes the wrongs, which I can I can cope with if it's the virtues of beautiful nature or that wonderful Robin. I love the Robin, yeah. <laughs> um, who guides her to the secret garden and ha- and is very characterful in a way that the film couldn't possibly capture. So there's a lot more. I enjoyed that a lot more in the book. But um, but yeah, I feel like what I one of the things I liked about Thomas Malick Garden in contrast to that is that no character in that is wholly good. There's, there are some who are a little over the top, wicked. But, but, um, but the uncle and aunt are very, 
believable they've been given this child they don't particularly want to look after and they're they're managing it in different ways and he asks annoying questions about what time is and has all these time theories and his uncle's a very logical man he doesn't want to hear it all that sort of thing whereas yes in in the secret garden it is much more that sort of victorian slash edwardian transformations can happen if only you, you you know find nature slash virtue slash in other books god slash you know yeah truth blah 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 um which i think i would have swollen whole and happy as a child but now i'm just like mm, okay <laughs> sorry i talked for a long time what, what did you feel about reading them this time um well the secret garden i, I will always love and i think there is there is a tweeness about it but that's what i i, I love i love its message that um nothing is irredeemable and that you know you can always change and i think that's the thing that I also loved about it as a child because I thought you know sometimes you feel a bit like you know this is who I am and this is who I'll always be and whatever and and this kind of story was the first that I'd read where it was like well Mary's really nasty and nobody likes her but actually you know given the opportunity she's able to become a really lovely person and it kind of taught me a lesson I think as a child about not judging people and I really I held on to that somehow. I don't know why, but I just did. And I just loved the idea of the, I mean, I grew up in southeast London with a tiny strip of grass and concrete as my back garden. So the whole idea of the garden and nature and the countryside and how transformational that could be and, and how wonderful it was to be able to be able to interact with nature and for that fresh air and all that sort of stuff. I just loved it. Because it was so, it was a world that I just didn't know. And so that sense of wonder has never left me every time I read it. And I actually got, my sister bought me a first edition for my 21st birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I had a really terrible cold on my 21st birthday. And I, like, so bad I couldn't get out of bed cold. Um, Mm. And I just spent all day in bed reading it. And I just thought this is just as wonderful as it was when I was little. And I just, I, I don't know what it is. It just speaks to something in my heart. I just love it. Um, Tom's Midnight Garden I found really actually quite moving at the end mm. so oh I, gosh I, yes I had a little bit I almost had a cry um, I had a I cried the first time I read it in in, in the what, in my staff canteen we <laughs> <laughs> were such losers I love it um, but it's, the kids at school are always like miss are you crying again I'm so sad <laughs> oh, so sad so sad yeah. um, I always cry at books but at this time I just thought that that last chapter, and I wonder whether only really as an adult would you get it, mm. thinking about how fleeting life is, really, and how ch- fleeting childhood is. And when he, that heartbreaking moment where he realises that she's grown up and he doesn't, she doesn't want him anymore, is just like, you know, wow, time just goes, doesn't it? And you don't realise it. And I just found it really touching. And the way that she really gently brings that message across is also really clever, I thought, of how she just, it goes from being just a fun story to actually being a bit of a a morality tale in a way and having something really profound to say about childhood and its preciousness. And I really enjoyed that. It was much deeper than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, that moment on the top of, they've, they've gone up um, Ely Cathedral Tower um, and, and somehow they did this brilliant in the TV series as well, which I don't think would work now because the, 
the actress playing Hattie is clearly in her thirties <laughs> throughout. <laughs> but, but there's a bit where he suddenly realizes that she's a, a grown woman, and every time I watched it as a child, I would suddenly realize it again as well. Which I, I mean, obviously, I knew each time, but but I got so into my oh, she's a child that it just struck me anew. And obviously, in the book, it's much easier <laughs> to to convey that because you don't have the same actress playing it. But yes, it is that that moment. It's not it's not this complete idyllic world he's escaped into. Um, he because it still has its own trials, whether it's Hattie's own sadness at being an orphan or about not being loved by her family uh, that have taken her in, um, or as you say about him realizing that she no longer needs him in the way that he was needed. Um, I think that's I, I guess that's partly what I mean by bite as well, where it's not this wonderful transformation into everything being all right. It is something of a transformation, but it comes with its own trials and its own um, issues, which I think, I don't know, there's more to hold on to there, I think. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a deceptively thoughtful book. Mm-hmm. And indeed, in, when I was in year uh, four or five, we had to do some creative writing. And I wrote the entirely original work, or at least the beginning of it, <laughs> Jack's Magical Garden, <laughs> which had exactly the same premise. <laughs> but for some reason, you know, like every child, I could not see that I copied it. I was like, I've changed his name. <laughs> and, and it's therefore a different... It's a whole new story. <laughs> um, I put out on our, um, on the Patreon page, patreon.com for slash books, <laughs> suggestions... Um, or request if anyone knew of any other children's books regardings that they'd recommend. And Elizabeth, thank you, Elizabeth, uh, mentioned the um, Anne of Avonlea and the Pat books by Ellen Montgomery. Um, I'm just going to rattle all these off and see if you knew them. Yeah. Uh, Beauty and Rose Daughter by Robin McKinley. Uh, Linnets and Valerians by Elizabeth Yes, Gooch, I've read that. That's very good. Which was, wasn't, was that the one that was republished as The Runaway? Yes, it is. Yeah. Which I still haven't read. Um, and Elizabeth's friend suggested fantasy books like Red Wall, The Time Garden by Edward Eager, Dealing with Dragons by Patricia Reed, and the Howl's Moving Castle series, and Enchanted Glass. Gosh, many. None of which I've read, in fact, from any of the ones on that, on either of those lists. <laughs> so, um, yes, I can't offer anything there, but, but it is interesting. Um, in fact, while I was on Patreon, I'll say that someone has signed up for the me sending them a book every month. I'm so excited. Thank you, Randy. Oh, really? Good <laughs> to decide someone's reading. <laughs> Or at least book ownership. Awesome. So, this is fun. But yes, it does seem that gardens appear a lot in, in children's books. And I feel like in, in both these ones, it sort of stands for freedom and for transformation, as we've been saying. But it is interesting that um, both these children would be so obsessed with gardens. Particularly Tom, who seems to know all the names of plants as well. It's like, what 10-year-old knows what hyacinth is? Maybe loads of them. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> no, know what I hyacinth is to this day. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wonder why gardens pop up so often. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I think, um, I wonder whether there's just an element of a garden being somewhere where children can escape to. It's not somewhere where you're kind of confined or that you have to share with somebody in the same way that a bedroom is or something like that or part of that. It's like a safe escape isn't it because it's not the wilderness but it's um yeah. And there's a place where you can find secrets and you can find little bits where no one can find you and that sort of thing. With Mary, it's slightly strange in that she's got this, all this enormous garden to, to be in, but she must be in that one garden. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, just go and play somewhere else, Mary, that's fine. But, 
But I mean, I've always, I think most people have loved the idea of like, you know, secret rooms and secret hideaways and all that sort of thing. So that always appealed. There's yeah. probably something very Freudian about the whole thing, but, but, um, but yes, and it is, you know, the idea of bringing something back to life because the garden's been abandoned and, you know, miracle worker Dickon, who is this <laughs> bizarre, to, <laughs> that was something I found a bit hard to swallow this time. But they're like, Dickon, don't you want to stay inside? It's pouring with the rain. He's like, oh no, you see beautiful new things in the rain. I'm going to get sodden and see some foxes. It's like, just stay oh, inside. Dickon. <laughs> he just wants I mean, to get involved with nature. Don't be so I mean, cynical. I mean, I think I have become more cynical than I, than I was because like, I just, I just wanted to shake him occasionally. It's like, it's okay just not to be outside every day. <laughs> what are you doing? Just talking to birds all the time. <laughs> Come on, Dickon, make some friends. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, Mary's very excited to make a friend in him, but I feel like he's probably his first friend, as far as I can tell. <laughs> he's just hanging out with the deer all the time. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, right? I, 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 I can see that I crossed the line. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I felt that Tom was more of a real child than, than Dick and was. Mary, I could believe, because she had grown up in this strange English Empire abroad thing where she hadn't met any other children. And she seemed to behave much as I would imagine anyone who had been treated that way would behave. But, um, yes, the magical Yorkshire folk that she encountered, I'm not sure. I... <laughs> um, and the dialect, you know, I never want to read dialect in a book, but I, it was, I could cope with it more than I could, you know, Charlotte Bronte's dialect, for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at least it was all understandable. At least to, you know, English people, I don't know how well it translates, but, um, although Frances Hodgson Burnett was American, wasn't she? No, she was English, but she lived in America. Yeah, I live. That's it. Yes. So um, maybe, maybe I mean, the American market at the time coped with it <laughs> and still do. But um, I mean, I could hear it in a Yorkshire accent because I know what Yorkshire accents Yorkshire. sound like. Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I mean, think we do. <laughs> is it? I want to clarify. It doesn't sound like anything I've said on this podcast. <laughs> but, but we're apologising to all Yorkshire people. Yes, dear Yorkshire. Um, sorry. Uh, but you know, I watch Emmerdale every day, so I, I, I well, get Yorkshire accents in my head all the time. <laughs> I should be. Um, if I was concentrating for a long time, I could probably do it, but I'm not going to experiment on the podcast. <laughs> uh, do you want to leap to Dickens' defence? <laughs> you get to leave it with that. No, well, I mean, I'm sorry, but I think Dickens is wonderful. It's not too good to be true, no. No, he's just, you know, he's he's at one with himself and with nature. And he's just loves simple things. I mean, what better? Have you ever met a ten-year-old boy like him? No, I haven't. But that's <laughs> irrelevant. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. He's a wonderful, Sorry, wonderful boy. Whereas I feel like you have, and indeed, I have met ten-year-olds like Tom. I feel like I probably was a ten-year-old, not unlike Tom. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'd have read more books than he does. He doesn't seem to read very much. But there's certainly, I found more comedy whether in, in Tasmanic Garden. I, I do love any scene with his uncle and aunt in because there's quite a believable marital dynamic there where he, you know, the uncle gets all het up and the aunt's like, yeah. oh, please don't, please don't antagonize him. I wish you wouldn't, Tom. Yeah. Well, that sort of thing. Um, it's also quite, you know, a, a slightly sad untone, which I don't know how, if it's intentional or not about, you know, they don't have their own children. Aunt, the aunt is obviously very motherly and maternal. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. that's never really mentioned. I think as a child you wouldn't really question it, but now I'm like, no, why don't yeah. they have children? Something's yeah. obviously happened there. And um yeah, again, it's not a major part of the story, but I think 
there's a few moments in it where which are obviously there for the adult reading it alongside the child. I think yeah, there's like undercurrents. Um, so particularly when we're talking about age or you know you know adulthood, there are a couple moments slipped in of but yeah about what it's like to grow older. Mm. It is interesting. Have you read anything else by her? No, and I can't think of anything that I know. I think she I think she did publish quite a lot, but I think that was really her big book. Yeah, I certainly don't know anything else by her. Um I'm trying to think, yeah. Just looking her up <laughs> um on Wikipedia as usual. Um Oh a dog so small, that was her. I've not read that, but I know of it. Yeah, I've heard of that. Um, but yes, she, she didn't write a huge amount of books, but, um, that was obviously her, her big thing. But, and it is a really, I mean, I don't think the, the premise entirely makes sense. I mean, I guess it couldn't, it's fantastic, but even her explanation of it in the book doesn't quite no, make sense. No, it doesn't quite marry up to it in the weird way that sometimes he's, the time goes backwards and forwards and it never quite explains why that happens. But I think yeah. as, as a kid, you're just like, okay, fine, whatever. And Abel, the gardener, can see him for yeah. some reason. Um, and so can Hattie, le- but not the others. Yeah. The legacy of Abel, the gardener, who is um, a, a very you know, upright Christian man, is similarly, he he, he um, can't put a book on top of the Bible because he says the, it should be on top of all the other books. And I still find, to this day, hard to put books on top of the Bible. <laughs> which, you know, I don't believe there is any theological or a religious <laughs> basis for that, but I'm less like... It was ingrained in me from Abel that you shouldn't do it. Um, But yes, the whole fantastic premise was something that, because although I didn't read it as a child, I first encountered it as a child uh, through the TV series, I just accepted and I didn't have any problems with some loose ends not being tied up, all that sort of thing. Whereas if I read it as an adult for the first time, I think firstly I'd find it harder to get on board with that element of it. And secondly, I'd want it to make complete sense at the end. Yeah. Um, perhaps it's hard to know, but it'd be interesting to know from anyone who has read it for the first time without knowing anything about it before, um, how, what your experience of that section was. I don't know, really. I didn't really think about it. Yeah. I was just, I, I was, um, I just realised the whole way as I was reading it that I, I'd just forgotten everything. Okay. Um, and everything was a discovery to me. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So, so presumably, like, you knew the broad outline of it. Yeah, but, um, I knew yeah. kind of he was going to find this garden, but I'd forgotten all those elements of it. So it was like reading it all over again, really, like just from yeah. becoming a bit fresh. And, yeah, I think I was, first of all, I was I was trying to work out the logic of it all. And then I realised there was no point in trying to do yeah. that. <laughs> um, and then I was just really enjoying the kind of, I, I found Hetty really quite sad, the fact that nobody loved her and... Um, and then increasingly I was finding it really interesting how Tom was, was actually becoming quite dependent on her mm-hmm. and, and the garden and that idea of, of him wanting to escape to a different life. And I think that was really interesting for me um, to consider that's often how children feel, isn't it, when you read books, oh, I wish I could live there, I wish that was my mum or I wish, you know, mm-hmm. I I could live in you know this place or that place and often wanting to put yourself in someone else's shoes children are quite passionate in that way of of really hating their life or really wanting things to be different 
And I think that brings that across really well. Like he doesn't want to go home, even though he feels a bit bad about his brother. Um, yes, I did find I found that quite strange on um, rereading that he's determined to stay there. So he's out of the quarantine and he yeah. has to stay longer just because he loves his garden so much and seeing his people. And I was thinking, you do have your own. I mean, it's not a nice garden, but your own brother and your own activities that, you know, <laughs> she really wants yeah. to go back to that. And the brother's completely supportive of writing these letters saying, oh, yes, do try and stay longer. <laughs> no, I also love how his brother just believes him from the start. I'm yes, that's like, true. What are you Unquestioningly. About if my brother wrote that to me. I mean, not that my like, brother. Clearly, he's got me. measles and he's having delirium. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the actual subtext of the whole thing. He's just hallucinating. <laughs> yeah. It's not really clear. So... It, if you have to choose one, and you do, that is the nature of the podcast. <laughs> um, which one are you going to pick? It's always going to be the secret garden for me. I thought it might be. Um, this is a much harder call for me, but I think if I'm just basing, trying to base it just on the books themselves and not any memories I have attached to them, um, I am going to say Tom's Monet Garden. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's just more nuanced, and that's what I appreciate more now. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. Um, but it was really fun to read slash reread them, so thank you, Lauren, for suggesting that. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, and in the next episode, I think I'm right in saying we're doing um, The Priory by Dorothy Whipple and Housebound by Winnipeg Fred Peck. Did we, just, um, did we decide that? Did we? Um, we can do that, but I'm going to have to find the books. But yeah, okay. they're in boxes somewhere. <laughs> Okay, well, if you let, we may be doing that next time, depending on whether or not Rachel can find the bikes. Yeah. Otherwise, we might do something else. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, great. Thank Thanks you. for listening, everyone. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.